We stand ready to receive whatever it is you have for us. Change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in Joshua chapter 5. If you're new with us, we've been making our way through the book of Joshua. Uh, our style of teaching here at Abundant Life is we are given to something called expository preaching. All that means is uh, when you come here, um, you're, you're going to hear um, a message from the Word of God where we let the Word of God set the agenda for our time together. So we're not going to open up the New York Times and walk through that or walk through some movie. We're actually going to walk through the Word. Now, you would think that would happen in just about any church, but sadly, that's not the case. So we are foolish enough to believe here that God's Word is true and that it will not return void or empty. Uh, Expository preaching is dangerous because it would lead you at times to preach on stuff you wouldn't normally preach on. Uh, I'm so serious when I say this. Joshua chapter 5 is going to shed some light onto whether or not Christians should kneel to the flag. So let's get into it, beginning in verse 1 of Joshua chapter 5. The pucker factor is high right now. Y'all like, where are you going with this, pastor? It's in there. It's in there. Here we go. Pick me up in verse 1 of Joshua chapter 5. Let me just read through all 15 verses. It says, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Now, let me just pause right there. Um, if I'm in the audience, I'm going to be like, can't we figure out another way to do this? <laughs> can't we do like a tattoo or give me a birthmark or something? Let me stop right there before I go too far. So verse 3, Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Let me just pause right here and say this. If you know anything about circumcision, what God had decreed was circumcision under the old covenant was a sign that you were a part of the covenant people of God. Now here's Israel's problem. Israel's problem was Uh, The parents did it, namely the the dads did that, but the reason why their kids didn't do that is really telling. They failed to pass along the commandments of God and to disciple their kids in the way of God. Israel's breakdown as a nation really is on the shoulders of the breakdown of the family. So I just can't give this enough to you. A lot of times, some of my frustrations with parents, especially in church, is a lot of times parents um, try to outsource their responsibility to disciple their kids on the pastor of the church, on the youth pastor, on the youth leaders, so on and so forth. When I pastored a church in Memphis, we would literally have parents drop off their kids at church so they can go catch a movie or they go shopping or whatever. So I just it just bears repeating We are not responsible for the discipleship of your kids. What we do is supplement what you're already supposed to be doing. All right? So this is highly important. The health of the nation is based on the health of the families. And the family punted on their responsibility to train and disciple their kids 
in the will and way of God. Verse 6, For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had swore to their fathers to give to us a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Yeah, they did. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away, your version doesn't say that, Uh, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now the ending of it speaks profoundly uh, to patriotism and nationalism. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The word of the Lord. Many of us have seen the movie, uh, the, Wizard of, um, the Wizard of Oz, and in this movie there's a, there's a classic line that uh, has made its way into American culture. Uh, here is Dorothy. She is uh, so far away from uh, Kansas, from where she grew up. She's surveying this new world she's, she's in, and uh, she is astounded by the dramatic and drastic changes that she's seeing. And here's Dorothy. She now uh, turns to her dog, Toto, and she says, we're not in Kansas anymore. It is her way of saying things done changed. Now, we we continue in certain sectors of our society to still co-opt and use this phrase when we say we are not in Kansas anymore. It is an idiom to speak of change, that boy, things have changed. Such is the case in our own society. In, in this text, I just want to tell you, I, I, I really, I, I don't think I can preach a more important message than the one I'm going to give you, because um, I think if we really pay attention to what God's going to say to us, we're going to really be challenged and equipped for how to be effective witnesses and stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of these doors right here in the bay. It goes without saying, I don't have to give you a line-by-line audit of all the sweeping changes that have happened in our society, but just over the last decade, those, those changes have been breathtaking. Even when I look at my own life and the span of my life, even if I, if I just go kind of from the 90s up until now, it, it, it's just, it just seems to be a completely different world. 
Now, I could talk about it in almost every sector of our society, but what I'm really concerned with right now is to speak of the religious sector of our society. Again, I don't have a time to get into a line-by-line audit of this, but in general, I want you to know that we are living in a society that has become increasingly secular. Now, I want you to fasten your seatbelts. This is as technical as this sermon gets. I promise you I'm coming to your neighborhood. I'm going to put my feet up on the coffee table in your house. It's going to get really uncomfortable and highly practical in just a few moments, but I just have to frame this philosophically and religiously in order for you to understand the milieu upon which God has called you and I to be his ambassadors and his stewards. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, uh, what you're about to hear should describe you perfectly. Now, the problem is, how do we really define secularism? It's, it's really hard to define it. It's kind of like the parable of the two fish who are swimming along one day, and here they are in the water, and one fish turns to the other and says, let's jump out of the water and let's just see what's going on on the beach. And the other fish turns to that fish in response and says, water, what's that? The idea here is it, is it is quite possible to be so immersed in something that it becomes so much a part of your, your culture that it's actually hard to, to see it and define it and describe it. See, what water is to a fish, secularism is to we uh, living in America in 2017. It just so permeates our culture. The best shot I could give you as it relates to the philosophical worldview of secularism, and please hang in there with me. I'm just going to take a few moments to describe this, is when we talk about secularism, we are talking about a philosophical worldview in which God is no longer at the core or the center of a person's life. Instead, he's way out on the outskirts of that person's life. And the driver's seat now is no longer God, but it is me, the individual. This is the land of individualism in which I determine what is right for me. Secularism from that standpoint is nothing new. It is as um, old as time itself. Secularism happens when I don't let God call the shots in my life, but I say move over God at best, be my co-pilot. And I know God just loves it when he sees those uh, bumper stickers. Holy Spirit, I love it to be their co-pilot. God does not want to be your co-pilot. He wants to sit on the throne of your life and call the shots. But when God doesn't call the shots in my life and I call the shots, I now have adapted to a secularist worldview. Now, I need you to get this because secularism really falls on on four key pillars. The first pillar of secularism is relativism. Relativism. Relativism is this belief that truth like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So whatever is true for you is true for you. Whatever is true for me is true for me. Under the secularist worldview, there is no such thing as transcendent truth. I was preaching a couple Sundays ago in Southern California, shaking hands afterwards. Uh, This couple came up to me. They're atheists. They're at church that Sunday. Praise God. They're very complimentary of the things that I'd said. But then they said this to me, "Uh, Pastor, we just really love some of the things you're talking about. And you gave us a different perspective as you were sharing your truth. Now, I hate that phrase. And there's a list of phrases I want banned at Abundant Life. It's phrases like your truth or my truth. The Christian worldview says there is one transcendent truth. It is found in the word of God and incarnated in Jesus Christ, who himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So all other truths are lesser truths, and if they don't subjugate themselves to the great capital T truth, Jesus Christ, they're not truths, they're lies. 
Now, what happens to a culture who's in secularism, who no, no longer believes in, in, in transcendent truth, they are now giving themselves to relativism, the next domino to fall is there's no real concept of sin. Do, do, do you see that there? If there's no transcendent truth, then there's, there's no real concept of sin. My wife and I had some uh, non-believers over at the house a couple weeks ago, and we're sitting there, and she just kind of uh, goes into her spiel on Planned Parenthood and her assumption. Now, I'm not here to, to parse out Planned Parenthood. I'm not here. This isn't a sermon on abortion. But, but she just automatically figured that we were going to co-sign on what she believed. See, see, abortion is really secularism at its worst. I get to decide what to do with the life inside of me. Parenthesis. I know I'm talking to an audience. Um, several of you have had abortions. There is grace. God's grace is sufficient. But that doesn't negate the fact that we don't get to call the shots on what happens to a life that's in us. So... I just stopped the conversation with her. I said, let me just push back on you. I hope you know we love you. Um, I said, I'm not going to bring Jesus up, but I said, you're a black woman. And for you to subscribe to Planned Parenthood is just disturbing to me. Not even go to, I'm not even going to talk to you about Jesus. Have you heard of Margaret Sanger? She didn't hear about Margaret Sanger. If you're a black person, you haven't heard of Margaret Sanger, and you are, you are pro-choice, just do me a favor, Google Margaret Sanger. Planned Parenthood is one of her grandchildren. Margaret Sanger had, had one driving aim in life. It was to get rid of black people. So for a black person to be all in on something that was created to get rid of them boggles my mind. I know this ain't the no shouting sermon up in here. I done lost about 40 people. Some of y'all want to tip out right now. I understand that. I understand that. Preach, pastor. Thanks, microphone. Thanks, thanks. So this, this is what I want you to see here. The assumption is that because there's no transcendent truth, she would get to talk about whatever she talks about and that I, I get to co-sign her. You know, I, I love living in California where everyone is open-minded until you disagree with them. So what happens? When there's no transcendent truth, when there's relativism, there's no concept of sin, the next domino to fall is there's moral decadence. We see this in the book of Judges where it says of the people of God, each man did what was right in their own eyes. Here's the fundamental rules by which our society gets to play by. Secularism in our society says you get to do what you want to do as long as what you want to do doesn't make me unhappy. You with me on that? So now the boundaries are pushed way to the side. So you make yourself happy as long as your pursuit of happiness does not infringe on mine. What then happens, here's the most dangerous part, a part that our text actually alludes to. When our text says that they rolled away the approach, the reproach of Egypt, here's what you need to understand. In a secular society, secularism is never a parked car. But secularism is not going to be comfortable with the exclusive claims of Christianity, which means in a secular society, here's what's going to end up happening to Christians authentic Christians. I'm not just talking about people who say they're Christians and occasionally pray over their food. I'm talking show enough followers of Christ. Here's what's going to happen. What's going to happen is persecution. 
See, if you study church history, Rome was fine with Christianity as long as it was one of many options. But when Christians started to say stuff like, we're not just one way to God, we are the way, we have the truth, and you are not the truth, now what happens in that secular society, Christians were persecuted. I don't say this to scare you, but here's what's happening in our society. As the heat is being turned up on Christians, it's actually having a purifying effect on the church where cultural Christians are being eliminated. So if you're on the fence and the heat gets turned up, you're going to turn your back on Christ. The church is being purified. It's, it's, it's happening within a context of a society that is turning the heat up and they are reproaching us. I, listen to their language. They're progressive. I love that. They're the ones who are progressive because they're open-minded, but we're the fundamentalist bigots who are mean-spirited and bitter. Now, unfortunately... That's true in some cases. Like there's some people I see, I just want to go, please don't tell nobody you saved. (laughs) Keep that between you and Jesus. But I hope you see where this thing's going, how Christians are being categorized. And that's happening right here in the Bay. Some of you all know that if you, if you, if you let other people on your job know that you're saved, you're going to be blacklisted. You may be passed over for promotion. Secularism, they're only open-minded towards people they think are (laughs) open-minded. See the hypocrisy there? Now, this is important for you to understand because verse 1 tells us in so many words that Israel is moving into a secular land. Look at it again with me. It says, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters. Now, what's going on here? Uh, these two words, Canaanites and Amorites, are broad junk drawer terms to speak of godless people. Watch it. God says, Israel, I am calling you to set up shop in a godless society. I'm calling you to do that. That's, that's, that's where I want you to live. That's where I want you to work. I am calling you to set up shop in a godless society. Listen, let me just say this to parents. Whatever your parenting philosophy is, praise God. Homeschool, send to Christian school, send to private school, uh, send them to heathen high. That's where our kids go. Send them wherever you want to send them. But listen to me, wherever you send them, you must prepare your kids not to be afraid of the world. But you must prepare your kids for how to adequately walk with Jesus in the midst of a society that doesn't think like they think. And God forbid, Brian and Corey Loritz, the first time our kids really get exposed to people who don't know Jesus is when we drop them off at university. They need to be exposed. God doesn't call us to live in little Christian cubicles. They need to be around people who think differently. And you need to be shepherding through them, through that with them. What does that look like? Now, here's the amazing thing. God says, I'm calling you there, and I'm calling you there to influence the culture. One of the things you must understand, abundant life, if you just survey world history, God has always used a creative minority. God has always specialized in using the underdog visiting team to impact and transform the culture in which they live. 
That's tiny Israel. That's uh, the first century church. I could take you to 17th, 18th century England, William Wilberforce, Clapham sect. They, they transformed the culture and the world. This tiny group of Christians read Stephen Tompkins' book on them. I could take you to the civil rights movement that was led by the underdog Christians that literally changed the culture. So just because we only make up two, three, four, five percent doesn't mean God can't use us. In fact, if you just look at how consistently God works, God always uses the underdog to accomplish his huge purposes here on earth. Now, how do we do that? How do we transform the bay for the glory of God? This secular society that doesn't believe what we believe, that doesn't subscribe to transcendent truth, that is embroiled in moral decadence, how do we change society? I am not just interested in having church. I didn't come all the way out here just to add more services. I didn't come all the way out here just to make sure we we finish in the black. I want to raise up an army of authentic, real deal followers of Jesus who are going to represent him in the bay. How does that happen? We need to be in tune with three things. First thing I want to point your attention to is verse 12. Now imagine you're Israel. You've been walking through the wilderness for 40 years. You've been eating the same old cornflakes every single day. And now God says, I'm going to change your diet. Look at verse 12. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. God says, I'm going to change your diet, and your change of diet represents a change of season. You've been eating manna for 40 years. You, you, you ate it when you were homeless. You, you ate it when you were wandering about. But, but now I'm changing your diet. I want you to eat the produce of the land that I've called you to. What is he saying here? By the changing of their diet, God is saying, you're home. In this godless society, you are officially home. I want you to look at Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7 with me on the screen. This is the nation of Israel. They've been sent into exile. Here they are leaving their land, going into a foreign land. What does God say to them? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and don't decrease. Now see, if I'm Israel, I've got a problem with this because I'm in exile. I want to know when am I going back home? God says, you ain't going back home. Take out a 30-year mortgage. This is home for you. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you to exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You can't influence anything unless you have an owner's mentality. I'm here. Own it. You may, you may have just come for, for school, four years, treat it as home. You may have just come here for the startup, treat it as home. You're home. In this godless land, you are home. My wife and I, if you know anything about me, I love golf. And you can't talk about loving golf unless you talk about a specific tournament called the Masters Tournament, which is the only major championship that is played every year in Augusta, Georgia. Well, several years ago, my wife and I sat down with a couple, um, very wealthy couple. They live in Augusta. And I just, I was like, man, what in the world? Just tell me about what that week looks like. Augusta just must be crazy. And they said, well, honestly, we're never there that week. And I said, well, why not? And they said, well, we, we can rent our house out for the week, for that one week for $35,000. 
I said, Lord, have mercy. Make, make me want to buy a house in Augusta just for that week. Um, I said, really? But then the wife jumps in and she goes, yeah, but we kind of had to stop doing that. I said, why? She says, well, last time we did it, a company rented, it from, rented our house from us for 50K for the week. I'm like, why? She goes, well, this company decides to throw a party and they invited us over to the house for the party. And when I sat down, I just couldn't believe this is, this is true. Am I making this up, sweetheart? She says, when I sat down at this party in my house at this company, had rented our house from us for 50K, I couldn't believe what I saw. They had the nerve to put glasses down on my coffee table with no coasters. I said, for 50K? You can break dance on my walls. You can graffiti my bed for 50K? She was telling the truth. They ended the deal after that. Unbelievable. I, I couldn't believe that. But, but what's the larger point here? The larger point here is when you own, you have, a, you have a different mentality than when you rent. God says, you're in the bay. You, you may have come here on a one-year contract, but treat it as home. Your home. Now, what does that mean? He says, I want you to eat from the produce of the land. Now watch this. In just a couple of months, they're going to be owning the land, which means they're not only going to be consuming from the land, they're actually going to be contributing or cultivating the land. They're, they're going to be both consumers and contributors. That's what owners do. People come to the bay, I've told you this before, historically to get you come here to consume. They came here to get gold. Uh, now they come here to get rich. You, you come here to get degrees. Some of the finest institutions are out here. This is a place where you come to get what is God saying to us in this secular society, how he wants to position us to influence it. He says, I want you to have an owner's mentality. Don't just consume, but cultivate. What does that mean? I want you to imagine it's your last day in the bay. You're leaving to go back east. You, you've been here a year or maybe five years or 15 years or 30 years, however length of time. It's your last day in the bay. I want you to imagine that. You've thrown a party for everyone that you have sown into, marked their lives, and influenced. How many people are at that party? How many lives have you influenced? How many people have you impacted? It's now testimony time. They, they want to say good words of ways in which God's used you to influence them. How many people are saying, you led me to Christ? How many, how many people are, are actually crying that you're leaving? The great tragedy of so many Christians is they can put up a for sale sign, leave a neighborhood, and no one notices. God says, you're home. Put down roots. And don't just come to get. Prayerfully consider, God, how can I leave this neighborhood, this dorm room, this workplace better than when I found it? Secondly, we're not home. 
Huh? Look at verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. You already know my thoughts on that. So Joshua made flint knives and, flint, flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at, at Gibeath, Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. A lot of stuff happening in this text. God says, I want you to eat the produce, observe the Passover. Uh, the bulk of the text is spent on God giving instructions for circumcision. Circumcision under the old covenant, it was a sign that we belong to God. Praise God, under the new covenant, God no longer requires physical circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart. That's the sign that we're part of God's people. But nonetheless, here is a nation of Israel. They were the only nation to collectively ascribe to circumcision. The basic idea of circumcision, it was a reminder that you are different. It is a reminder that you don't belong to yourself, you belong to God. It is a reminder that you are not the CEO of your life, God is. It is a reminder that I am a part of God's unique covenant people. I am different. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to understand that, that, that we belong to Jesus, that, 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 that this is not our ultimate home. Philippians 3.20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. So I want, want, want to remind you of that. And, you know, in, in the Bay, we need to be reminded of this. This is some of the most precious real estate in the world, but it's not your ultimate home. In other words, we're to treat it as home, but we're not really from home, which means to be a follower of Jesus means we are dual citizens, both of this world and heaven. Best way I can explain it to you is immigrants. When we were in the first Peter series, I walked you through what an immigrant is. An immigrant is a person from one country who lives in another country, but you know that they're an immigrant living in this country because everything about them is different. The way they talk is different. The way they act is different. Their cultural preferences and norms and practices are different. Different, 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 different. What's true and the natural of immigrants must be true of Christians. The way we talk must be different. The way we behave must be different. The way we think must be different. Different. Different, different, different. Let me push this a little bit further. But exactly, Pastor, what does it mean to be different? I know there's kids in here, so I want to be very careful how I say this. The physical act of circumcision was done on a particular part of a person's body. If worldliness is best equated with how one stewards the gift of sex, then for that Jewish male to be circumcised in a particular part of their anatomy, it was a visual reminder that part of the way in which I am to be different is how I steward the gift of sex in my life. My wife and I, when we first moved to New York, we went to a comedy club. It was a date night. And uh, we just wanted to get some laughs, and we, we, did. we sat in the back. I don't know if you've ever been to a comedy club. If you sit up front, you're asking for trouble. I'm not trying to be part of the jokes, um, but we sat in the back, and uh, one of the comedians got up, and one of the things he asked was, in this packed nightclub, he says, who here has been married longer than 15 years? And to our great shame and embarrassment, Corey and I were the only ones to raise our hands. The whole audience in the secular city of New York burst out in applause. But the more I thought about it, I said, how sad that there's not that many models in secular society of marriages that are still together, flourishing and thriving. Now, how does that happen? By God's grace so far, 
And I'll be the first to tell you, I'm not perfect. But by God's grace so far, a part of the way that happens is Corey and I's commitment to Jesus, and that commitment to Jesus is borne out comprehensively, but especially in the way we think about and relate to the opposite sex. The sexual choices we make in a secular society serves to be as a megaphone announcing our allegiance not to ourselves, but to Christ. That's why we did the men's huddle and trying to equip men and how to think about these things. Christians are to be comprehensively different. That doesn't make us better people. It makes us different. And one of the areas we are to be different is how we think about and steward the gift of sex. I love this quote. Rodney Stark says of the first Christians that they were promiscuous in their giving, but monogamous with their sex. They were generous financially. The Romans scratched their heads because in a society in which people did what they wanted to do in the area of sex, it was Christians and their allegiance to God that stood out. I know this is a heavy statement, but every time someone in marriage decides to step out of that marriage and commit adultery, you announce to the world that the God you serve is impotent. We're home, but we're not home. Let's go home on this one. Fasten your seatbelts. We're going to get into politics. Please email me at arshell at net. Here's Joshua, beginning in verse 13. He is outside of Gilgal. Chapter 6, next week, we're going to be in chapter 6. It's the fall of Jericho. Joshua's probably scouting out Jericho, but right when he gets to the outskirts of Jericho, he sees a mysterious man. Who is this man? Most scholars believe that this man is the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. We know this to be true because of the imagery that's here. This man has a sword. I want you to look at Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. This is John writing. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, uh, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth, watch it, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nation's And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. I love this. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. I got into a discussion with this one morning at breakfast with my boys. They're trying to talk to me about um, tattoos and what I think about it. 
And uh, I said to them, look, guys, I'm not going to fuss with you about tattoos. You're just not going to get one in my house. It's, it's just permanent, right? I, want, I don't want you to be 14 years old getting a tattoo and regretting it at 44. So just wait till you get out of my house. But then one of them said, so wait a minute. The Bible says on Jesus' thigh, he has a name written. How did it get there? It's like the only verse in the Bible he knows. I said, shut up, boy. Do what I said. Are you going to be paying for breakfast? <laughs> on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See the imagery? Dr. James Boyce, he's gone on to be with the Lord, famous pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. I used to go down and hear him preach as a student. He says, can we doubt who this individual is? Speaking of the mysterious person in Joshua 5, he is none less than Jehovah appearing here perhaps in a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. This, friends, is Jesus. Joshua didn't know that. Here's Joshua scouting out Jericho. He, he sees this mysterious person and he says in so many words, whose side are you on? He says, no one. I'm not on either side. Tony Evans preaching this text once said, God doesn't ride the backs of donkeys or elephants. One lady here at the church, though, said, when she heard me quote him, she says, um, Pastor, I've got to ask you, what was Jesus riding when he entered into Jerusalem? I said, a donkey. She smiled and says, he is a Democrat. We had to correct her theology right there on the spot. Joshua wants to know, whose side are you on? Are you for us or for our adversaries? In the aftermath of what happened last weekend with the NFL and the protests, it is important to hear these words. Joshua is saying, are you waving the Israeli flag or the flag of the Canaanites? And he said, verse 14, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. You need to hear this. When the national anthem is played, God does not turn to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, stand up, take your hat off, put your hand over the heart, let's sing. So we can just get first things first. God does not sing the star-spangled banner. Let's just understand that. Secondly, show me the chapter and verse that says America is God's nation. Show me that one. It ain't in here. It's not. Now, has God favored America? Absolutely. In fact, I believe part of the reason why God's poured out his favor on America is what we did to the Jews for the Jews in World War II. We stood up for him. We were advocates, advocates for him. In Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant, God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless those that bless you. When you. Listen, listen. If I ever run for government, which I won't, but if I ever run for government, my foreign policy is going to be real simple. Be nice to the Jews. That's just a good foreign policy to have. 
right? What? America was nice to the Jews. What happened? God, in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, blessed America. But don't confuse that with America being God's country. It's not. So I want you to exhale on that. Hear me. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Should Christians be patriotic? Yes. Absolutely. I believe so. And not to split hairs. I'm not saying whether or not you should kneel. But but at least admit this. Colin Kaepernick, his attempt by kneeling was to show honor. That was the attempt. I'm not saying whether or not that's right. It was the attempt. Now, watch this. Because we can agree that the Bible does not speak clearly on this. And the the Constitution gives one the leeway. Then here's here's the thing. We have the right to protest. We have the right to protest the protest. We don't have the right to be mean. When our patriotism is on par with our worship of God, we've just committed the sin of nationalism. See, what, what, what I want to say to some Christians, and I know, I know I'm getting the notes, and I know I'm getting the emails, and they will be impassioned. Some of y'all send them to me. Now, here's what I think. Love the passion. But can I get a little bit of that in worship? Can I get a little conviction? I also want to say this. If I am more passionate against the protest than the reason for the protest, systemic injustice, then I believe my passion is misdirected. Arshel at ALCF. I'm in it now, so let's go a little bit deeper. I want to touch on this as a pastor. Why does any discussion on government and politics so infuriate some of you? Could it be you have made politics your surrogate savior? Idolatry is when we've made anything, even a good thing, an ultimate thing. When it disproportionately angers you, it is an idol. We have wrapped our identity around the White House and government. I was just on a plane the other day. I'm reading this phenomenal book by a University of Virginia professor named James Davison Hunter called To Change the World. Look at what he says. Next to their occupation or profession, their commitments as Democrats, he's talking about Christians, their commitments as Democrats or Republicans, pro-lifers or pro-choicers, conservative, liberal, gay, and so on, compete to form the largest part of a person's identity in public. Taken to an extreme, Identity becomes so tightly linked with ideology 
that partisan commitment becomes a measure of their moral significance, of whether a person is judged good or bad. This is the face of identity politics. Vote. Vote your conscience. But I hope you know at the end of the day, God is not shaking going, oh my gosh, a Republican won. What are we going to do, Jesus? Do you understand that? But when our world caves in over who's in the Oval Office, we are fundamentally saying that my hope is built on nothing less than Donald Trump. Marshall at ALCF. What's the real message here? What is Jesus doing? Don't miss this. Jesus, while the nation of Israel has just entered in, and they're having church at Gilgal, Jesus is hanging out at Jericho, where they're about to go, already securing the victory. Jesus is working behind the scenes in ways in which the people of God cannot discern to ensure their victory, which means this. We win. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Here's what I want Christians to understand. The reason why so many Christians get downright mean and nasty and bitter and you do all these mean comments on a person's Facebook page and you know how ridiculous I think that is because I've never seen a Facebook conversation back and forth end with, you know what, you're right and I feel like the Holy Spirit wants me to agree with your position. It doesn't happen. But the reason why Christians go down this bitter path of, of being mean and everything, we get so anxious and nervous and mean, 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 mean. I want to go, haven't you read the book? And the book says we win. And when we let that truth settle in our spirits, yes, we keep voting and yes, we keep pushing and yes, we keep fighting, but we do it from a sense of peace and we do it from a sense of joy because we have hope, not optimism. You ever gone to a movie with someone, but you'd read the book that, was, that the movie was based off of and they didn't? Two different viewing experiences. <laughs> you ain't getting all tense, wondering what's going to happen because you've read the book. You ain't freaking out because you read the book. Your blood pressure isn't spiked because you've read the book. And all I want you to know, Christians, is get in this book, and this book says we win. Calm down, chill out. It's going to work out. It's a good place for Cormac and the team to come. We got some work to do, friends. Some of you all may dislike the bay, but if you're here, it's home. And while it's home, it ain't home. You ain't from here. Act like you're from heaven. And never forget we are on the winning side. So, Father, we bless you today. We honor you. We praise you. God, this is a, 
crazy world in which we live, all kinds of crazinesses happen. We're right in the thick of a secular society. But we believe the same Jesus who is working behind the scenes on the outskirts of Jericho, that same Jesus is riding his horse up and down the 101 corridor, out in the East Bay, all across this society, working it out. So, God, we have hope. And we thank you for it. God, in this multi-ethnic body, where there are different opinions on the protests and the flag, and data says that these opinions line up tragically by race, I pray that there would be space in this body for both groups of people. That we would love each other well, those who believe in kneeling, and that we would love those well, those who don't believe in kneeling. That there would be freedom here. That we wouldn't try to clone people into our own image. That we wouldn't try to say more than what your Bible says. So teach us to honor the emperor, as First Peter tells us, to honor our leaders, to honor our country, and also fight for justice too, Lord Jesus. Show us what that looks like. Help us to translate these truths in our neighborhood to the point where when we do move out of that apartment complex or, 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 or out of that rental home or that home we bought, Lord God, that, that our neighborhood and apartment complex would, would feel a void because the people of God were there praying for them and praying a hedge of protection around them. God, help us to do that. Fill our dinner tables, Lord God, with secular people who need to hear the truth of Jesus Christ. God, that's what abundant life is going to be. We are going to be a deployment station where people get what they need. They, they feast at the table of your word. They get encouraged to be sent out to live for you in the bay. Do it, Father God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.